0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number Store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 148, Women, 1066 and Marriage. In last week's episode, we spent some time talking about Anglo-Saxon attitudes and how they affected women in particular. This week, it's time for 1066 and all that. As far as women were concerned, was it a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing? And we are also going to revisit that fine old institution of mariage. And actually, just for once, I think I've managed to control my incontinence and stick to a reasonable length for a change. Yehoy. More than once, gentle listener, I have reflected the traditional view of English historians through the ages about the good old Anglo-Saxons. How they were the golden days of honest men and women and freedom. When men were men, women were women, and small furry creatures from Alpha Centuri were small furry creatures from Alpha Centuri. When both ends of the pineapple were as smooth as the softest of baby's bottoms, But then came the Normans, with steely eyes, sharp swords and bad haircuts. And the good old English freedoms were a thing of the past, and the yoke of French oppression lay heavy on the necks of honest folk. Until at last, they forgot to speak French, and the sun rose again over the green hills of this fair and pleasant land. Ah right. Anyway, such rubric applies very much to the rights and roles of women. Doris and Frank Stenton were as fine a pair of Anglo-Saxon historians as ever donned an open-toed sandal. You'll probably remember Frank, since I'm sure I referred to him in my Anglo-Saxon years, given that he is still the historian that defines study of the age. But I may not have mentioned Doris. It was Doris who really bore down on the argument that the Normans had robbed the English woman of her birthright. The basic thesis goes like this. In Anglo-Saxon England, women could own property on their own account, and there are wills to prove it. When the Norman kings arrived, they brought with them an administrative approach to kingship with a kind of quasi-civil service. So rather than the power that women at court used to wield, the likes of Emma and Elthrith, Women now disappear from the real power brokerage. No more do we see queens anointed in their own right in the way that Anglo-Saxon queens used to. Even history gets rewritten, curse it. The mealy-mouthed Norman historian William of Malmesbury sidelined that cast-iron, copper-bottomed, honest-to-goodness military genius and heroine, Ethelflad, Lady of the Mercians, to the status of a moaning minnie and bit-part player and to cap it all, to put the icing on the cake to add insult to injury and the ninth stitch. The Normans bring the French church with them, and all that Anglo-Saxon sense of fair play and women's rights disappear in an avalanche of Eve did this, Eve did that, it's all Eve's fault and none of you should be having sex anyway, you should be at your prayers. Plus, Billy the Conk established a completely new approach to landholding in England anyway. Now, nobody owned any land anymore. It all belonged to Billy, and he used to pay for soldiers through the feudal system, so a totally male-dominated system by definition at the time, and therefore disinheriting all women landowners. I have to say I'd like to believe this thesis as much as I'd like to believe that Derby County will one day win the Champions League. But as I believe I've said before, there is nothing so tiresome as an intelligent historian with a balanced point of view. And the fun suckers have been at work with this particular thesis, just like any other clear and one-sided historical story. The funsuckers, represented in this case by my female guru of women's history, Henrietta Laser, basically aim their torpedoes at two targets. Firstly, that the much lauded Anglo-Saxon freedoms are overstated. And secondly that the Norman approach wasn't much different, actually, and had compensating benefits anyway. I've often said that I'm not much of a historian, just a bloke in a shed, and added to that, my knowledge of women's history is postage stamp-sized. But I think I'm going to disagree mildly with Henrietta on this occasion, and agree mildly with Doris. Not that either of them would give a tinker's curse, but there we are. I would point out that Henrietta is an emeritus professor of history, at St. Peter's College, Oxford. But anyway, the fun sucking approach runs like this. On the first line of attack, one of the famous wills that supports Doris's We Love the Anglo Saxons argument is a case involving a chap called Edwin who sued his mother for land. His mother told him to sling his hook and gave all her positions to her kingswoman, Leoflad. So that sounds like a woman in control of her own inheritance and in control of her own life. Ah! The fun suckers point out. But as it happens, the guy who reports all of this is a man, Turkill the White. And spookily, Leoflad, the woman who gets all the land, is his wife. OK, rejoins Doris. Even if that's relevant, what about the 350 women who owned land in late Anglo-Saxon England? Well... It turns out that half of that land was held by just three women, and those women were members of the ruling Goodwin family. The point of this is that land ownership, for both men and women, depended more on power and connections than it did on theoretical legal freedoms. And you have to suspect that behind the façade of this female landholding, it could well be that the husbands concerned were simply putting into effect the plans being made by their husbands and lords. The second line of attack is to say that in practice, women in medieval England may have a different role, but it's no less important a role. So after the conquest, women in practice do hold plenty of land, or at least have power over plenty of land, and transfer it, even if they don't legally own it. Think of all that fuss about those glittering heiresses. William the Marshal, for example had more sons than you can shake a stick at, but they all died without children, so his land was shared out equally between his daughters. In the feeding frenzy that followed, the land, of course, became the property of their husbands, but the women were well protected by the practice of dowries and therefore protected in their lifetime when their husbands died. In fact, they were a good deal better off than their younger sons, who had no such protection. If fathers wanted to help their younger sons, they had to take their homage and therefore the land they gave to them was forever alienated from the main estate. Ah, Doris might have argued, but let's look at the women we know most about, the queens. As Melisande told us last week, late Anglo-Saxon England is awash with women who play a central role in high politics. Ethelflad, Edgifu, Elthrith, Emma. Afterwards, the very image of the role of queens changes significantly. So if we think about the model of later medieval queenship, the role seems very much more in line with the later model of the Virgin Mary. The role of the queen is no doubt regarded as essential and central to the needs of the state, but it isn't a partnership of equals, as we might conceive of Elthrith, Queen of England, with Edgar. Philippa of Hainault, for example, much-famed wife of Edward III, was a model, of medieval queenship. And her role was as a peacemaker. Her job was to intercede to soften the harsher edges of her royal master, the king. So as with the burghers of Calais coming out from Calais and begging for mercy as they surrendered their town. She could throw herself in front of the king and beg for the lives of the poor folk. And it gave the king a face-saving way of backing down, able to make the point that he held their lives in his hands but able to choose not to exercise that power. But having said all that, the Queen's advice was entirely, well, advisory. It was the King's decision to make. Fair enough, say the fun suckers, but let's consider why this is, and if it's really such a problem anyway. Because the point is that the entire system had changed, military landholding as per the point above, the King at the top of a feudal pyramid, the introduction of primogeniture, as a method of inheritance. So the system had changed for men every bit as it had for women. And actually, the system brought much greater stability for queens. Anglo-Saxon kings did often have more than one wife. In Anglo-Saxon England, inheritance was not necessarily driven by primogeniture, so younger sons had the right to inherit as well. So all that high politics with Emma and Elthrith was not so much because of the power they wielded as much to do with political instability. Those mothers had to fight and struggle to make sure it was their son who succeeded. If they didn't get it right, they could be discarded along with their sons. Whereas after 1066, a queen's role was better defined and as much valued as before, even if it was different. A queen wouldn't be discarded and there were rarely arguments about who would inherit. So... 1066, good thing, bad thing, just a thing. Well, he pays your money and he takes your choice. It's probably not wise of me to take sides in this, and I can see the argument that before 1066, the influence of the church had grown, and the model of a woman's role was already becoming that of the silent passive Mary, rather than the devil-mangling Juliana. But the fact seems to remain that, at least in theory, there were more women driving the events of politics in Anglo-Saxon England than subsequently that in law at least women could own property. But maybe the really important point is that in history, context is everything, and maybe compiling a balance sheet of women's rights before and after the conquest misses the point that women made their own different evaluations in medieval times about what was important to them than they might do now in 2015. Marriage. As I said at the start... I thought I'd talk a little more about the fine old institution of marriage, the feather bed in which I have lain for these past years. We have spoken a bit about marriage before, have we not? But hey, it was a really, really long time ago, and it was back in the midst of time. So first off, let's hear it for the church. The poor old church does come in for a bit of stick, and we should constantly remind ourselves that actually it did also do a massive amount of good. It was, by and large, a force for cohesion in society and to soften the harshness of life for the poorer members. And in this, one example was the attitude to marriage and choice. The Church made it quite clear that women and men were free to make their own decisions about who they married. And in fact, all that was needed to make the marriage legally binding were the statements, I take you as my husband, I take you as my wife. This actually put the church in a slightly odd position, where while it was desperate for marriage to happen through and in the church, it was actually forced to accept that his teaching said, you could nip off behind some bush somewhere, say the words, and in the words of Mark Bolan, you could get it on. Now the point's been made by many people that in practice things could have been very different. In practice there was enormous pressure on women and, and indeed men to marry the family's choice. But what we don't know is whether the examples we see where men and women defy the family are the exception or the rule. We do know that parents sometimes go to enormous lengths to get their children to do the right thing as far as they see it. So, Christina of Marquette, for example, was subject to anger, threats, love potions until she finally gave in and married the man of their choice and then changed her mind or at least stayed committed to remaining a virgin. To do him credit, her husband, Bohred, refused to insist on his marriage rights. And rights, incidentally, since the church taught that in marriage, men and women had no right to refuse sex to the other. So we have this image of Bohred being berated by the whole community for being weak and unmanly, for not forcing his wife. There's also the example of the marriage of Marjorie Paston. Marjorie was probably about 20 and she has at some point set her heart on one Richard Cal. Richard was, in the eyes of Margaret Paston, Marjorie's mother, a most unsuitable match. Richard was their bailiff, for crying out loud, and well into his thirties, the dirty old man. Marjorie and Richard went through the mill, and the outraged letters flew around the family. Marjorie and Richard were officially under the cosh. But they remained firm and steadfast. One letter from Richard to Marjorie has survived. Here is a very brief extract but gives a little idea of the pain that the lovers were going through. I realise, lady, that you have had as much sorrow on my account as any gentlewoman has ever had in the world. I wish to God that all the sorrow you have had had fallen on me, so that you were freed of it. For indeed, lady, it kills me to hear that you are being treated otherwise than you should. This is a painful life we lead. I cannot imagine that we live like this without God being displeased by it. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The reason we have this letter is probably because it was intercepted by Mother Margaret. And in the same letter, Richard wrote, Mistress, I am frightened of writing to you, for I understand you have showed the letters I have sent you to others, but I beg you, Let no one see this letter. As soon as you have read it, burn it, for I would not want anyone to see it. Almighty Jiju preserve, keep and give you your heart's desires. This letter was written with as great a difficulty as I ever wrote anything in my life, for I had been very ill. Nice to see Richard working in a bit of man flu there. The two lovers insisted there was nothing Mother Margaret and the family could do. They were already married. ''We'll see about that,'' spat Margaret. ''There's been no marriage I can remember.'' And the heavies were duly wheeled in, in the form of the Bishop of Norwich. And they don't come much heavier than the Bishop of Norwich. The Bish did his best, but it didn't go the way Margaret wanted, as her subsequent letter related. And the Bishop spoke to her very frankly and reminded her of her birth, relations and friends, and what friends she might have if she followed their advice and if she did not follow it what dishonour and shame and loss it would be to her and how they would forsake her and would not help or comfort her there was more of the same then the bish tried to find out if young marjorie had said words that bound her that really bound her to try and persuade her that she could back out and make the family happy but according to margaret young marjorie was having none of it apparently she Boldly said that if these words did not make things sure, she would make it sure before she left. His foolish words grieve me and her grandmother as much as everything else. Then the bish called in Richard and gave him a grilling to boot. But the long and short was that the lovers had made their vows to each other, and the church was forced to accept that they were binding and complete. There was nothing to be done. The couple was married in the eyes of the church and the law even though they'd been nowhere near the church and hate it or loathe it, blood is thicker than water and the family Paston had to accept the situation however grudgingly. Although initially mum did throw Marjorie out but Richard remained employed as the family bailiff at least until 1503. In 1482 when she croaked, Margaret left £20 to Marjorie and Richard's son John. So all was well that ended well. It's impossible to avoid the thought that for every Marjorie, there must have been ten who did not have the strength of character to resist the awful pressure of the family. But on the other hand, focusing on their extremities ignores the fact that in all likelihood most marriages would have been arranged with the good of the child in mind. As we've said before, though, the stakes were high. Marriage was a big step, and a major opportunity for advancement of all families, of whatever estate, from the meanest to the poshest. So here's the Blaggers' Guide to Getting Married in Medieval England. Stage one was making the deal. Before any betrothal came the hard-headed financial negotiations between the family. One pig. No, two pigs. Focusing on the dowry the woman would bring with her. Once the hard bargaining was done, there might be a nice betrothal ceremony. The kiddywinks could be as young as seven but until they were of age, somewhere between 12 and 14, a betrothal wouldn't have the force of law. Stage three, when everyone was ready to get married, there was then a period when the bands were read, then as now. A chance for excitement to build, families to make sure everything was ready, just to make sure no one had any proper objections. Stage four, the big day. The bride and groom met at the church door. The groom announced the dower that the bride was to have and gave her silver or gold as the symbol of the dower, delivered in a book or a shield. And then he gave the ring, once it had been duly blessed. And then came the all-important vows. Stage five, it was only now that they went inside the church and at some point the couple would kneel under a pall of some kind and be blessed once more. Stage six was the good bit, the knees up the wedding feast, bride's ale, whatever you wanted to call it. When it came to a knees-up, no one was mucking around. The extent of the feast would of course vary according to the status of the happy couple, but a feast of some kind there would be. It was a requirement, not just a nice idea. If nothing was forthcoming, the couple could actually be fined by the manorial court. On the other hand, if the couple were very poor, the village might instead have a bit of a whip around to give the pair something of a send-off at least. Stage seven, the final step was the blessing of the bed. Doesn't seem that there was a trial of the couple's abilities at this stage. That would come later if there was trouble. So the Stebbins steps to heaven then. If there was to be trouble and dispute, the most common area of getting out of a marriage was breach of contract. There are some beautifully... Hard-hearted examples. Court cases are fun, aren't they? Unless you happen to be involved in one, of course. So let me mention but one. This was John and Agnes. John was a merchant, and Agnes could see a good catch when she saw one. Coming man, all that sort of thing. So she went to see John and begged him to get on with it before he left on a long trading journey. John, duly encouraged, obliged, and he took a goose round to her dad's place and the goose was enough to do it for Dad, and vows were exchanged. Mission accomplished. Off John went on his business trip. Unfortunately, John's business trip did not go well, not go well at all. But never mind, John would return to his loving wife-to-be, and they would build up their business again together. But when he returned, destitute, the hard-hearted Agnes coolly informed him that inexplicably she no longer loved him. John took Agnes to court for breach of contract, though why on earth he'd want her after that, no one knows. Although not as common, consummation of the marriage was another popular approach to getting out of a marriage, on the grounds that each party owed each other sex as an obligation. And unless mutually agreed to, failure in that department was therefore breach of contract. So, a woman's virginity could be inspected by, quote, matrons of good repute. And the same applied to the man as to the woman. And here I can only imagine the pressure. Basically, the idea was that 12 women, quote, worthy of faith, of good reputation and honest life, could carry out an inspection of the offending male's member. And if it did not come up to scratch, as it were, the marriage could be annulled. So guys, listen to this report for a case in York in 1433 and spare a thought for a chap called John and tremble. So in this case the twelve good women were assembled. Quote. Seriously, quote, bona fide. I'm not making this up for effect. The witness exposed her naked breasts and with her hands warmed at said fire, she held and rubbed the penis and testicles of the said John. And she embraced and frequently kissed the said John and stirred him up in so far as she could to show his virility and potency admonishing him for shame that he should then prove and render himself a man. And the said penis was scarcely three inches long, remaining without any increase or decrease. This was enough for the good women. They cursed John for not being able to, quote, better servant please his wife, and left the court. Seriously, not a good case to lose. John, across the centuries, I feel your pain. And I have to say, I can't really follow that. So I think I shall end our discussion of marriage right here. For the weekly word this week... Let's most appropriately talk about bride, bridal, and bridegroom. Bride is a straightforward enough word, a word with a Germanic root from the Old English bride, first heard of in Beowulf in about 725, and cognate with the Old Frisian breed, Old Saxon brood, and so on. Commonly used for a woman at her wedding, or, I suppose, just afterwards on the honeymoon. Apparently, there is some debate about when you start using the word bride to describe somebody. The grand old man of British politics, Gladstone, apparently got into trouble in a parliamentary debate when describing the Princess Helen, who'd just got engaged, as a bride. Upset at being challenged by the house, he declared that he thought it was colloquial practice to use the term bride for engaged women, and got equal amounts of here, here, and no, no. So, like Gladstone... I'll leave that one to you to decide. Bride had been used in other contexts. So, in the 16th century, for example, to say that something was bride with something else meant it went well with it. In the same century, to bride might mean to mince or behave in a very affected manner. So I might bride into a room, wafting my scented hanky over my nose and muttering, Sink me! Something I'd rather fancy having a go at, actually. But the word bridal... Is not as simple. It's not the simple compound or adjective of bride you might expect. Originally, it comes from the Anglo Saxon breedialu, or wedding feast, rather confirming the early Anglo Saxon association of a good time with some form of alcohol, in this case, ale. But bridegroom is a slightly odder word, is it not? I mean, why is it exactly? that a new husband should become associated with someone who looks after horses. Was there an ancient tradition, maybe, of husbands giving their new wives a nice hot oat mash, and a bit of a rub down at the end of the day? Does it have something to do with pony nuts? Or is there something darker at play here? Well, what we have, according to David Crystal in his excellent book, The Story of English in 100 Words, is an ology, a feature of the development of language called popular or folk etymology. The original of the groom bit of the word is a rather flowery and poetic word. A word for man in Old English, guma. And the first time we see the word in an Anglo-Saxon version of St John's Gospel is written breed groomer, the bride's man. But fast forward 500 years and the Tyndale Bible and we find the word bridegroom. What's gone on in the interim here? What's happened is that the word guma itself fell out of use. It was a pretty ornate, unusual word anyway, the preserve of the literati, so pretty much everyone else had never heard of it anyway. So unconsciously, people wanted to turn the word "breed guma" into something they recognised and understood. So, at the same time, over there somewhere, the word groom had arrived and was changing. In the 13th century, it meant simply boy. Then it came to include adults as well. So you've got this perfectly incomprehensible word, goomer, and then this perfectly understandable and quite closely related and sounding word, groom. We seemed very close to the meaning everyone was looking for, man. And so let's use bridegroom. Everyone's happy. Or they are in the 15th century anyway. This is an example of folk etymology. When people come across a word they are unfamiliar with, they then try to make sense of it by replacing it with a vaguely related word they do know. Unfortunately, language does not stand still, and if it had a human persona, would probably be an unusually rebellious teenager, because by the 16th century, groom had become associated with a servant, not just a man. Worst, its next path was to become associated with a specific job, that of looking after horses. You can still see the original meaning of the word in that most antiquated and outdated of English institutions, the monarchy. So, for example, groom of the chamber is still a job title in the royal household. And so we end up where we are with today, with the rather odd word, bridegroom, which had nothing to do with pony nuts and simply means the bride's man. Which brings us triumphantly to the end of this week's podcast. There will be an even more toe-curling episode when we talk next week about sex, childbirth, children and stuff which will be deeply, deeply uncomfortable. In the meantime, I have generous donators to thank to Maureen, Wayne, Simon, Dustin, Stuart, Cathy and Benjamin. Thank you very much. Good luck then, everyone, and have a great week.